Good day. Well, this is a real special day because um, I want to introduce to you uh, our new uh, new staff member, Nick and Rosemary. Uh, Nick's going to come on, our pastoral staff. And uh, would you guys come on up here? Um, they moved from Hungary, from a town called Eger. They're not, well, actually, Rose, you're Hungarian, but yeah, your dad was Hungarian, right? Yeah. Are you a citizen of Hungary? Yeah, and so therefore he is. No? Okay. Anyway, anyway, this is just such a special couple to us, and uh, we're so glad that they made it here to Colorado and to serve here at Whitefields. And so um, I want you to see these faces, and we want to just get behind them and support them, and they don't know anybody here except us, and so, uh, and they, they like food. And, uh, <laughs> and so... Just, we just, I just want to encourage all of us to wrap our arms around this family, Nick and Rosemary, their three children, and just love on them and welcome them into this new place. So um, thanks for coming, you guys. We're excited for what God has. But let's pray for them, can we? Father, we thank you for Nick and Rose and, Lord, their service to you. We thank you for their children, Lord, and we thank you, God for the gifts and anointings that anointing that you've put on their life it's all from you lord and we're just your vessels and we thank you for these vessels though they're clay pots like the rest of us cracked lord you fill us with the gospel and the glory of of you and your beautiful character so lord i pray that uh lord that you would just bind us uniquely together as a, a community, as a family. And Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would just pour your blessings on them as they're looking for a place to live and you know, the right schools and, and all that stuff, Lord. We just pray that you'd guide them each and every step of the way. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone who agreed said, amen. amen. All right, yeah. So Nick's going to teach this morning. Nick. Good morning. It's good to be here. My wife and I, uh, we've always loved coming to Whitefields, and we're really excited about this new chapter in our lives, and we're excited about this new chapter in, in the lives of this church. And, you know, we had a good thing going in Hungary, and, um, and that's uh, the reason why we came here is because we believe that God wanted us to come here because he wants to do a work here in Longmont through this church. And so we're excited to be here. We have vision for what God wants to do. And I, I hope that you have a vision for your church too. So let's go ahead and pray as we get into the word. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you speak to us, Lord. We thank you for the work of Jesus on the cross. Lord, we thank you that it's finished. Lord, we thank you for all of the things that salvation means to us, Lord. We thank you for all of that work which you want to do in our lives. Lord, we thank you for the work of redemption. Lord, we thank you that you are doing that work right now of forming us into the image of Christ as we hear your word, Lord, as it transforms us. So, Lord, we give you permission to speak into our lives today. We give you permission to change us, to challenge us, and we ask that you would do all those things by your spirit, and we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me start off this morning by asking you a question. What does the word salvation mean to you? I mean, that's a, that's a pretty big word. It's a pretty common word that we hear in church. But let's think about what it means. What does the word salvation mean? I think that if you would ask most evangelical Christians to define that word for you, they would define salvation as being forgiven of your sins and having eternal life. 
Uh, in fact, I even tested out this theory I have uh, by asking some people in our church in Eger, uh before we left how they would define the word salvation, and that's exactly the answer they got. Now, in some ways, I guess that reflects on me since I was their pastor, but I would have to say this, that this definition of salvation, that salvation means being forgiven of sin and having eternal life, it's correct, but I would also say it's not complete. Uh, I would say that this, that is an aspect of salvation, but salvation in a biblical sense means more than that, especially in the way that Jesus talked about salvation. When you read the Gospels, what you find is that Jesus, he spoke of salvation both in eternal terms and in temporal terms. And I think that we can often think of salvation primarily in eternal terms, but it is important that we not neglect the temporal aspects of our salvation as well. Because uh, what Paul told the Philippian church, maybe you remember it, in Philippians chapter 2, he told them, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then he added to that, he said, and it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, if salvation were nothing more than, than getting forgiveness and eternal life that you could, you could gain once and for all just by putting your faith in Jesus, then what is there to work out? And, and because of this mentality, there are people who then would say, well, you know, they've done their deed, they've uh, gotten their get-out-of-hell-free card, you know, because they, they did their, their one-time action, and that's all that matters, and and their attitude is kind of like, well, I've done the minimum that it takes to get out of hell. So I guess from here on out, uh, I just have to survive and, until I die without denying the Lord Jesus, right? Uh, that is the essence of their Christian faith is to not die <laughs> before, yeah, or sorry, not deny the Lord Jesus before they die. That's the goal. But uh, the reason we work out our salvation, as Paul says, is because salvation is bigger than just simply eternal life. It also means abundant life. And abundant life includes many aspects, such things as experiencing freedom from bondage to sin and vanity. That's an aspect of our salvation. It includes experiencing the restoration of God's original intentions. For example, uh, just one example, God created man for the purpose, the intention that he would be in fellowship with him. That's God's original intention. And we experience this aspect of our salvation when we are in active fellowship with God. The abundant life, it also means being part of of God's redemptive work here on earth, being his vessels through whom he accomplishes his will to seek and to save that which was lost, to redeem all that has been corrupted by sin. So today I would like to talk specifically about two aspects of this great salvation that we have in Jesus. I want to talk about the aspect of identity and that of rest. And uh, think about this. If I were to ask you the question, who are you? What would you say? How would you answer that question? Now, I'm not asking what your name is. You know, I'm asking, what is it that makes you who you are? What defines you? What is it that gives you your identity? I think that if you talk to people, a lot of times you can find out what things people find their identity in by what they say about themselves when they talk to other people. 
For example, if, if I asked you that question, who are you? Some of you might answer, well, what, who am I? I'm an American. I'm a, I'm a Christian. I'm a mom. I'm a dad. I'm a musician. I'm a runner, etc., etc. You know, the way that you answer the question of who you are, that tells a lot about what things you find your identity in. It tells a lot about what things you believe give you value. So notice what Paul the Apostle had to say about himself and what he had to say about the change that happened in his life as a result of him having experienced salvation. He says this in Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. He says, Whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And here's what I want to focus on today. He says, and that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, which comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now, I find this phrase, to be found in him, I find it captivating, don't you? What does that mean? I want to know what that means, to be found in him. I want to explore what that means. Because Paul says that this is the goal of his life, to be found in Christ. So what does that mean? What does it mean to be found in Christ? I believe part of being found in Christ is finding your identity, knowing your identity in Christ. Before Paul came to know the Lord, his identity, he found his identity in other things. In the few verses before the ones I just read, Paul tells us what some of those things were. He says in, in verses 4 through 6, he says, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now this was Paul's identity apart from Christ. These are the things which he believed gave him value, his religion, his adherence to his religion, that he was a good person, that he had proven that. He found his identity in his nationality, for example. He found it in his position as a Pharisee. He found it in his own righteousness, in his own goodness. These are the things that he would have answered you if you would ask him, who are you? But what he's saying here is that in Christ, he has found a new identity. He has found his true identity in Christ. He no longer finds this identity in his own goodness, in his own righteous works. That he's a good guy, that he's successful in his field. He wants to be found in Christ with a righteousness that does not come from his own striving, but which comes from the Lord himself. And with an identity that doesn't come from his own striving. So righteousness and an identity that comes from the Lord himself. What the Bible tells us is that the basic fundamental problem that we have as humans is that every one of us builds our identity on something other than Christ. In a way, you could say that there is a work beneath our work. There is a striving which lies beneath the things that we do. And it is when we are found in Christ with a righteousness that is not our own, but is given to us by the Lord, by his grace, when we come to know the grace of God, that's when we find true rest for our souls. 
So when I say this phrase, think about this, the work beneath our work, I'm talking about that generally speaking, uh, people are striving, sometimes, often, desperately striving for significance. That's what we see in Paul the Apostle in Philippians chapter 3. He was striving for significance. He was striving to prove himself to God, to other people, even to himself maybe, through his work as a Pharisee, through his zeal and his religion. In other words, he wasn't just so zealous as a Pharisee because he liked studying the law. That's not all there was to it. There was something beneath that. There was something more fundamental that was driving him. He, he wasn't just zealous for the law because he simply loved the Lord and, and enjoyed walking in the ways of the Lord. Rather, he was doing these things, and he reveals that here. He was doing these things in a desperate attempt to earn God's favor to earn favor from other people in an attempt to prove that indeed his life was significant, that he was somebody, you know, like Rocky Balboa, you know, I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. I never actually saw that movie. That's the only line I know. But the point is that, uh, that Rocky Balboa, right, he had this, this work beneath his work, right? He was trying to prove it was more than just boxing, right? He was trying to prove that he was somebody, that he was significant. And if you think about it, there are so many people, and Christians included in this, who have this work beneath their work. They're striving for significance. You know, many people overwork, right? Not because they need more money, not because they love to work, uh, not, but, but oftentimes because they're striving to prove that they are somebody. Some people try really hard to be perfect parents, but they don't always do it because they simp not just because they just love their kids. Sometimes they do it because they're desperately trying to prove themselves, that they are somebody, that they are a good person, that they are significant. And there can be, I believe, this underlying fear of failure and insignificance that drives people and motivates them. Because, think about this, if your identity is based on what you do, if that is what defines who you are, if what you do defines who you are, then what happens if that thing you do doesn't work out? What happens if you base your whole identity on your, your work being successful in your field and then you lose your job? What happens if your business doesn't go well? What if you can no longer do that hobby which gave you your identity? If your identity is built on being an awesome parent, then what happens if, God forbid, something would ever happen to your kids? What if they grow up and just move out? What happens if the whole thing you built your identity upon collapses? Well, then what happens? Your whole world falls apart, and that kind of thing does happen to people all the time, and it's not pretty. This is essentially what happened to King Saul in the, the book of 1 Samuel. If you remember the story, Saul was chosen to be the first king of Israel. And he was a natural-born leader. He was a head above the rest. He was tall, good-looking, the kind of person where he walks into the room and everybody takes notice of him. And at first, you, if you know the story, Paul was, or, sorry, Saul was hesitant about taking on this position, but he finally did. And what he found is that he really liked being the king. And uh, in fact, he liked it so much that he, he began to think too highly of himself. He began to do things which he, in fact, had no right doing whatsoever. And at one point, God told Saul, he gave him instructions about what to do in a battle against the Amalekites. 
But Saul didn't do what God told him to do. He thought he knew better. He had a different plan. So instead of doing what the Lord told him to do, Saul did what he thought would be best. And the Lord spoke to him afterwards and he told him, Saul, rebellion is like the sin of witchcraft. And he said, I, the Lord, I desire obedience more than sacrifice. And he told him, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. And in the very next chapter, we read that the Lord sent the prophet Samuel to David, who was just a young guy at the time, and anointed him to be the next king of Israel. And, uh, and as you may know, you know, David did not, this is what's interesting, that David got anointed there in the middle of 1 Samuel, and he didn't take over as king until the beginning of 2 Samuel. Uh, it was many years, you know, until finally Saul died that, that, uh, that David took over as king. The whole latter half of the, of the book of 1 Samuel is the story of how Saul tried to hold on to his position as king, even though he had been rejected by God. When Saul realized that David was the one whom God had called to be the next king, he tried to get rid of him so that he could hold on to that position as king. At first, he just wanted to have some of his men kill David, if you know the story. But he became, as time went on, so bitter and so determined to kill David that he said, I want to kill him with my own two hands. First and Second Samuel are, are therefore, it's an interesting study because what you essentially see is this great contrast between Saul and David. David, the, the man after God's own heart, and Saul, this natural born leader. And one of the biggest differences between these two men is their attitude about their identity. You see, if you would have asked Saul, who are you? He would have, I believe, he would have stuck out his chest and he would have said, I'm the king of Israel, you know. That was his identity. That's who he was in his own mind. And because of that, when the Lord took the kingdom away from Saul and he could no longer be king, he freaked out. Like, he absolutely freaked out. And he got to the point where he was willing to do anything that he could hold on to his position as king. He was willing to kill David. In fact, he was willing to kill the prophet of God, Samuel. Because Saul found his identity in his position as king. And he couldn't imagine, he didn't even want to imagine life without that position. Without that identity. But on the other hand, if you would have asked David... David, who are you? What makes you who you are? I believe that David would have answered, I'm the servant of the Lord. That's a different kind of identity. David found his identity, and here's the point, in who he was in the Lord, and that made all the difference. If David had to tend sheep, his identity was the same. He's a servant of the Lord. If he has to fight as a soldier, if he has to lead the nation, his sense of who he is didn't change. He was a servant of the Lord. Whatever the Lord wanted him to do, he would do. If God wanted him to be king, that was cool with him. But he didn't need to be king. If God wanted to take the kingdom away from him and give it to someone else, David could accept that. He would still just be who he was, a servant of the Lord, just in a different capacity as the Lord saw fit. And the essential difference in the attitude that Saul, uh, that between Saul and David is that Saul found his identity in what he did, his position, whereas David found his identity in who he was in God's eyes. You know, when I first moved to Agar a few years ago, it was seven years ago now, we started the church there, and I, I had to learn this lesson for myself. 
personally. Because when we first started the church in Eger, right, there were not very many people there. And, uh, and I remember that one Sunday, you know, when uh, other than the team of people who were there to set up the church and run things, one person showed up to church. One person. And, and you got to understand, I had spent like hours that week, like hours and hours preparing a sermon, hours setting up the church. And, uh, you know, it got to the point where all I thought about was the church, you know. My prayer life, it was all about the church, you know. I started to get depressed. And, uh, and what I had to learn was that the problem was, was that I was finding my identity in what I did, not in who I was in Christ. I found my identity in that I was a pastor, that I was a church planter, that I was a missionary. And when things went well, well, then I felt good. And when a lot of people showed up at church, when outreach went great, I felt that I was successful, that I was significant. But when things didn't go well, I get totally stressed out. I would get depressed and I was a wreck. And one day my wife, you know, Rosemary, she told me something which was really revolutionary for me, a fundamental truth. And essentially what, I, what I'm sharing with you today, she said, you know, Nick, it's, it's not what you do that defines who you are. It's, that's just something you do. Okay? You shouldn't find your identity in what you do, but in who you are in Christ. And, uh, and as I let that sink in, that was such a freeing truth, I have to tell you. The more I started to think about it, the more I really felt set free to just live my life and serve the Lord and even enjoy it because I wasn't doing it anymore in order to prove myself. I could just serve the Lord because I loved the Lord and I loved declaring his truth and leading people to Jesus, not because my whole self-worth was based on how well the church went. And, uh, and I was learning what it meant to be found in Christ. Like Paul says, with merits that are not my own based on what I do, but with the merit of Christ based on God's grace towards me, his favor towards me, totally undeserved, totally unearned by me. And let me tell you, that freed me up to do the things I did without the baggage of those things defining me as who I am. When I, when I was... I was learning and grasping this phrase, what it means to be found in Christ, to find my identity in him by his grace and not by my own works. Uh, another movie which I've only seen part of, but uh, Chariots of Fire, you guys have seen this movie. This is my, my wife loves this movie, she's a runner. Uh, I fell asleep, but I woke up for some parts of it. Um, but I know what it's about, so I'll tell you. So it's a true story of, of two men who ran for, uh, they raced for Great Britain in the 1924 Olympics. One man was Eric Little, the other one was Harold Abrahams. And uh, Eric Little, he was a Christian. In fact, Eric Little was a missionary in China, and he later died as a missionary. Abrams, on the other hand, didn't know the Lord. So Abrams and Little, they were both trying very hard, as can be expected, to, to win gold medals. The difference was that Abrams was, was trying to do it. Why? Out of a need to prove himself. And at one point he reveals this. He, uh, he's talking about the race he's going to run in and he reveals his heart. And he says, I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. Little, on the other hand, he had a totally different attitude about running. He said at one point in the film, he says, and I love this line. He says, God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. 
I love that. See, Abrams was, was tired even when he was resting because there was this work beneath his work. And little, though, he had rest even when he was exerting himself physically. Why? Because little understood what Paul the Apostle was talking about when he said this phrase here in Philippians 3, that the goal of his life is to be found in Christ with a righteousness that's not his own based on the law, based on his own works, based on his labor, but with a righteousness which comes through faith in Christ. And when you come to know that grace of God, that is when you find rest for your soul, truly. You could take all the vacations in the world, but until you come to know the grace of God, until you come to learn what it means to be found in Christ with a righteousness that's not your own, but is by God's grace to you, you will, you will not find that deep rest for your soul that you truly long for. Because there's a work beneath your work. The work of trying to justify yourself, trying to prove yourself to other people, to God, maybe even to yourself. On the cross, at the end of the greatest act of redemption, Jesus said, it is finished. And we can rest because of that. Jesus lived the life that you should have lived. He died the death that you should have died. And if you rely on Jesus' finished work, you know that God is satisfied with you. And that is how you find rest for your soul. Jesus suffered the restlessness of separation from God so that we can have the rest of knowing that God loves us and accepts us and that our sins have been forgiven. To be found in Christ, it means finding your identity in him. And when you find your identity in him, that's when you find rest for your soul. That's when you can stop trying to prove yourself to God, stop striving. You can rest from the work beneath your work because you realize it's not what you do that defines who you are. It's who you are in Christ that gives you your true identity. You don't need to prove yourself to him that you're a good person, that you have value or significance because in Christ, you are a beloved child of your heavenly father. My kids don't need to prove themselves to me. They don't need to work for my love. They don't need to earn it. I just love them and I love to bless them. And that's all it comes down to. That's exactly what God's grace is about. It's unearned, undeserved favor of God upon you. Grace means it's not about what you do for him or what you have earned or worked for, but about what he has done for you, what he has accomplished for you in Christ. That is the basis of how God deals with you. And that's why Paul desired so much to be found in Christ, because he realized that it's impossible to earn God's love and favor by being good enough. And he came to the point in his life where he, he said, you know what, all my striving to prove myself, it's rubbish. I count it as rubbish. I just want to be found in Christ with a righteousness that's not my own, but which is from Christ by faith. He didn't want God to judge him on his own merit. He wanted to live and enjoy and receive God's grace, that undeserved, unearned favor. There was a young woman who came to serve with us in Hungary last summer. She was with us for about a month or so. And we spent a lot of time talking, getting to know her. She was at that time struggling in her faith and in her relationship with the Lord. And as we would talk, I mean, we couldn't help but notice that this girl kept on telling us over and over that she really was a good person and that she never really did anything that bad, you know. But she just felt that something's wrong. There's something that's not right in her relationship with God. And after a while, you know, we pointed that out to her that she kept mentioning this over and over, you know, and we asked her like, 
hey, you know, who exactly are you trying to convince that you're a good person? Like, why do you keep trying to convince us? Like, we just met you, you know? And, and why is it so important for you to tell us that? Because here, here's the deal. As long as someone is trying to prove all the time that they are a good person, it reveals the fact that they haven't really comprehended the message of God's grace. As long as you're still talking about your goodness or even your lack of goodness, it means you haven't understood the message of God's grace. Paul says that he no longer finds his identity in his own goodness or in the lack thereof. He no longer wants to be found as a good person with his own righteousness. He wants to be found in Christ with the righteousness that's not his own, but which comes from faith in Christ. And we all need to come to that place where we, we realize and we say with Paul, I don't want God to deal with me based on my own merit, my own goodness. I want to be found in Christ. And that's what I explained to this girl. She ended up realizing that although she had been going to church for her entire life, she had grown up in church, she had never actually been born again until that point when she understood the message of God's grace, what it means to be found in Christ. And it was a glorious thing. We got to baptize her there in one of the rivers in Hungary. And maybe there are some of you here today as well who you've been trying to find your identity. You've been building your identity on what you do rather than who you are in Christ. My message for you today is that when you find your identity in Christ based on who you are in God's eyes, because of the finished work of Christ on the cross, based on his grace rather than your labor, that is when you will find rest for your souls. What the gospel does is that it sets us free from sin and it makes us children of God. That is a new identity. That is who you are in Christ and that is what it means to be found in Christ. And when you really get that, when you grasp it, when you grasp what it means to be found in Christ, that's when you can rest. You can rest from striving to earn God's favor. You can rest from striving to prove yourself to others. You can rest from striving for significance. And you can begin to do the things that you do from a completely different motivation. You know, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, the love of Christ constrains us because we have concluded that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. He says, the love of Christ, that's my new motivation for the things that I do. When you grasp what it means to be found in Christ, your motivation for doing the same things that you're already doing, it changes. And it, it's no longer striving to prove yourself, to earn something, but it's a response. It's a response to the love of God. A response to the love of God that was manifested for you on the cross of Calvary. The love of God that's manifested for you day by day as he just pours out grace and blessing on your lives. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace towards us. Lord, we thank you that in Christ, Lord, you do not deal with us based on our own merits, based on our own goodness. And Lord, if there are any of us here who have been hanging on to that, who have been trying to hang on it, 
trying to make you deal with us based on our own goodness, striving to prove ourselves, trying, striving to prove our worth and our identity. Lord, I pray that you'd set us free from that. Help us, Lord, that we would see what it means to be found in Christ with a righteousness that doesn't come from our own labors, Lord, but one that's by your grace as a gift because of the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And Lord, I pray that as we grasp that, Lord, give us that rest for our souls that we desire so much. I pray that you would do that work in our lives this week. In Jesus' name, amen.